from the social justice classroom inside Hugh Boyd Secondary, this is Voices. A youth-created podcast driven by a steadfast commitment to improving the world around us. Hello everyone, this is Emma, Amelie, and Ashana, and you're listening to Voices Podcast, the original Hugh Boyd podcast created by social justice students. Today we are excited to be interviewing a very significant individual, Honorable Sheila Malcolmson, who is currently the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions here in British Columbia. Honorable Malcolmson was elected as member of the Legislative Assembly in 2019. She was then re-elected in 2020 and is now the current minister. Thank you so much for making time for this podcast. It is truly an honor for us to have the opportunity to interview you. I'm so grateful for the invitation and especially to be speaking with three strong women who have an interest in public service. I'm, I'm very encouraged by you. So in today's episode, we are going to have a chat with the minister to broaden our perspective and shed light on some of the crucial issues that the province is experiencing today, such as the overdose crisis, safe injection sites, and mental health. To start with, we would like to ask you something about you, your life, and your job. Could you describe what inspires you to get involved in public service and what motivates or provides you with a sense of purpose today particularly in your current role as the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Yeah, it's so I think I think like so many people it really comes from family at the very beginning. You know, everybody in my family, almost everybody was involved with them um, looking after families or working for justice in some way, social worker, teacher, uh doctor who worked with mental health. Um role officer. So that was just like my model, but I really was passionate about environmental issues. I had a teacher in grade 11 and 12 who was a biology teacher, but she convinced her school board to let her teach environmental studies, ecology, um, which is pretty standard now. But um, when I was young, it was a really new thing. So I'm so grateful to her as a teacher. Um, I got involved in elected office, uh, I've won eight elections now. Um, the very first one was about environment and I wanted to protect environment. But it's really been interesting for me working with the NDP, the um, uh, link that I see more and more strongly that if we don't achieve social justice for people, then we can't work on environmental issues. The, um, you know, when I would go knocking on doors in people's neighborhoods, people that were in low income or just getting by day to day, they didn't think long term, they didn't think about salmon or climate change or anything. So now I see what inspires me now is if we work on social justice and get everybody ahead a little bit, then we have more people that are willing to think long term and, and think for the environment, which we need for the long term sustainability too. So they're very linked for me. And that's something that the NDP really does. And that's some um, why I'm so honored to be here in this role. Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, I recognize, you know, people's challenges often come from, um, from not having a safe home, from being worried about the environment, um, from not having enough time in nature, all the things that can make you feel better. So those passions are very linked for me. 
Thank you. That's actually very interesting and really inspiring for the youth. And we can only imagine some of the challenges in leading a ministry tasked with supporting the mental health of British Columbians during a pandemic. In recent statements, you highlighted how the drug crisis has worsened since COVID-19 and is especially impacting us, the new generation. Would you be able to briefly describe the overdose crisis that our province is currently experiencing and some of the factors that are contributing to it? You know, it's such an important question. We could talk all day about it, but I would say just in brief, uh, British Columbia really got hit very early um, and very hard by, um, uh, I mean, all drug dealers are bad, but ones that saw that they could profit more by buying um, and selling to people a very concentrated, very dangerous, you know, what used to be a more like originating, you know, back in the olden days of opium. Um, now there's so much chemical addition into the drug supply. So a person that thinks that they, who has become addicted to drugs, they have to have them. It's not a, it really is not a choice. Their body is physically addicted. And if they don't, take some of that drug, they will feel sicker than they've ever felt in their life. Having a little bit of it is what makes you feel better. I can't relate to that myself, but I've really been, I, I understand from people with lived experience that it is, um, it's like someone who has diabetes, they need that um, insulin in order to survive. Um, unless, you know, so what we want, uh, anyway, oh, I'm going all over the map here. So um, increased toxicity of the drug supply has meant that a lot more and more people have become um, have become poisoned and more and more have been dying. In When our government started to come in in 2017 and started to build up uh, addiction treatment, harm reduction, all the ways to intervene and save lives across the continuum of care, um, the terrible death toll did start to drop. And then the pandemic hit. I mean, and that effect of dropping, um, you know, decreased number of lives lost was felt right into the first two months of the pandemic. Uh, once um, the measures came in where people were more isolated, they couldn't go out to public health services, but also the um, very unscrupulous drug dealers uh, mixed more contaminants even than before into the supply and the death toll just shot up. And so it is discouraging. We've had um, more supports, more investments, more treatment beds, more ways to try to save people's lives in BC than we've ever had before. But the toxicity has increased and increased. Um, and so that just means we still are losing unacceptable, um, a terrible number of lives. And it means we have to do more. That's BC's particular intersection with the toxic drug crisis, but other communities and other provinces and states across North America have been experiencing the same thing. It's a very difficult time. Thank you so much for elaborating on that, because some of us are not really aware that these certain factors exist. Can you highlight some of the steps your ministry is taking to tackle this complex issue? We've been trying to um, add new, as we learn more, and as the profile of the public health emergency changes, we've continued to modify our response and continue to add new ways to, to try to save lives. So one part is simply keeping people alive. Um, sometimes that's called harm reduction. 
I call it prevention, overdose prevention. Uh, so in some cases, that is offering drug testing. So if somebody is um, considering using a drug, they can go to have an evaluation to find out if it's particularly toxic. Maybe they will choose not to use it. Maybe they'll just use a tiny amount. Um, that's one. There are more supervised consumption sites. So it used to be one. Now there's more than 42 where someone can bring their illegal drugs in. There's a nurse or someone to witness it. If they do have an overdose, there's someone there to revive them right away. So those are on the kind of life-saving side. Life side. Um, and then we've built up many more detox and treatment beds across the whole province, more than 340 new treatment beds, and we're still working on opening more. Many of them are aimed specifically at youth. Some are aimed just at women. Um, so we're really, um, we hear from people with lived experience that people need options. We're doing that. Um, and then kind of on the in-between of the two, we, two years ago, two and a half years ago, started to offer prescribed safe supply. So if someone who is addicted to an illicit substance, a doctor can prescribe them an alternative to that substance. That means they don't need to have the danger of using an illegal supply. They don't have to do dangerous things like sex work or theft. Um, and our hope is that then the person stabilizes they can keep their housing, they can keep a job, then we can talk with them about treatment so that they can leave the drugs behind. But we first need to keep them alive, stabilize them, and then move through the treatment continuum. Thank you so much. This is an extremely important issue that a ministry is currently facing. In a tweet from last year, November 1st, 2021, you said, Substance use and addiction is a public health issue, not a criminal one. British Columbia is adding new health and substance use care services almost weekly. But we know shame prevents many people from accessing life-saving care. That's why it is crucial to decriminalize people who use drugs. To elaborate on what you meant in this tweet, can you please describe for our youth audience the difference between decriminalization and legalization, including which approach you are taking and why? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Such a good question. So it has been interesting, I think, because the legalization of marijuana that the um, that Prime Minister Trudeau did about five years ago, I think that has sometimes can confuse people. Um, so that so what we're doing now in British Columbia with decriminalization is not like what happened with marijuana. Instead, um, what the coroner uh, and also Dr. Bonnie Henry as the public health officer observed from the evidence was that the majority of people who were dying of drug overdose in British Columbia were dying alone in their own homes. Um, so this is not about people on the street that I think is maybe the stereotype but um, people by themselves. And often their family and friends had no idea that they had an addiction challenge. If you use these drugs by them by yourself, they suppress breathing, you just fall asleep and you do not wake up and there's no one there. If you're by yourself with this increasingly toxic um, drug supply time that we are in, it's especially dangerous to use drugs alone. So this is why we continue to say we need a healthcare response and not a criminal justice response, because the reason that people are hiding their substance use and not saying to family or friends, 
I'm going to go do something dangerous. Will you spot me? Or if I don't come out from my bedroom in five minutes, will you come and wake me up like that? Um, you know, sometimes we have friends that do dangerous things, um, so a bit risky, but you would tell a friend, right? Um, this isn't happening with substance use. And so that's what was recommended to us was to remove the shame and stigma that makes people hide their addiction, use drugs alone, and resist going and asking a doctor for help because they think it might impact their ability to travel or get a job or be able to retain custody of their children, so many things. So that's what decriminalization is about, is that people that have a small amount of personal supply, if the police find them, they will say, instead of saying you're going to get charged, you'll have a criminal record, or even taking the drugs away, what now police will do is say, here's some information about treatment and about harm reduction, and here are the resources in your own community where you can get help. Um, we're the first place in Canada to do this, and um, and we will learn from that. But what we heard more than anything is that people need help navigating into the healthcare system. And if they're hiding from police, that won't help. Police say, police asked us to do this also. Police want to be part of that help, helping navigation. The, the drugs remain illegal. Drug dealing remains illegal, illegal. Drug trafficking remains illegal. And that's why we want the police to focus on the drug dealers and stopping the illegal supply while we are working with police for the individual people that are addicted to help steer them into the healthcare system. Does that make sense? Certainly, it is a very helpful way to define these heavy terms. And we are with you for the progressive approaches that you want to make. And as part of the youth, we believe that our open-mindedness is an important value that has helped us to be involved in conversations of present-day issues. But we are also aware that we can be very vulnerable and easily influenced by a lot of things. And so do you believe that there are any risks around the message the criminalization might send to the youth or that it could in any way encourage drug use? And are there ways that the government or others can work to combat any chance of this and discourage illicit drug use among teenagers? Yeah, I think it's really important. For one, decriminalization does not apply to youth. Um, the criminal code is what we got an exemption for, and that's just 18 and up. So younger people have always been in a different part of the criminal justice system, but they're not in the criminal justice system. There's different legislation that governs them. So decriminalization does not apply to young people. So they should know that if you are using a dangerous drug, you may still be subject to criminal charges. Um, but you would go into the youth justice system, not the criminal justice system. We also designed decriminalization. When I also say, you know, we did say to the federal government that we would talk with young people and we would see if there were some ways that we could, even though decrim doesn't apply to them, that maybe there's something we can do that's different. We haven't got there yet. Um, but what we did do is say decriminalization also does not apply on places where young people would obviously be. So if you're on a school ground, if you're at a daycare, some other things that are too, like in a national park, um, the, the old rules still apply. If someone has, um, has uh, illegal drugs, then the police can charge them and can seize the drugs. Um, but I think maybe the more important thing that you're talking about is um, how important it is for us to try to prevent addiction in the first place. And so we are, we've got some programs called mental health in schools where we talk 
with people um, in the earliest years about creating resiliency, creating good, emo you know, being emotionally articulate, talking about your feelings. If there's unresolved trauma, let's work within the counseling system and try to have you attend to those things that can lead into addiction as an adult. Um, but also we're doing a lot of work on television about, um, you know, letting people know if they are having troubles with addiction. Um, we're trying to just change minds to have people be more compassionate and say, if you have become in trouble with drugs or in troubles with addiction, we want you to come forward and get help. We're building systems of help for you. We don't want you to be ashamed and hide it. We want you to ask for help. And then it's our responsibility as a government to make the, make sure that the kind of help that will be welcoming to young people, not stigmatizing, is available for them. Yeah, and we also do understand that it is indeed challenging to deal with the situation, especially that there is a direct link between mental health and then the likelihood of drug addiction. The next topic we would like to talk to you about is safe injection sites. Let me introduce what these places are for our audience. Safe injection sites are supervised facilities designed to provide hygienic environment for drug users to inject. They also provide, for example, serial needles and syringes. According to Vancouver Coastal Health website, supervised consumption sites are beneficial for the community because they help prevent people from transmitting infectious diseases. They encourage marginalized people to access healthcare services, including primary care and addiction treatment. They bring stability to the community by improving public order and reducing the number of injection taking place on the street. Could you talk about why harm reduction programs like safe injection or consumption sites are fundamental to saving lives in British Columbia? It's uh, the, the ability for us you know, at the same time to have, if someone is going to use drugs, they're so addicted and dependent on them that they're going to use it no matter what. We want it to be in the safest, cleanest possible place. Um, and we also want it to be in a place where there is access to medical care. So if someone does um, go into any signs of overdose, that they can be responded to right away. There hasn't been a single death of anybody in British Columbia at a supervised consumption site. Um, and that is especially in this time of increased toxicity. That just says we have to do that. This is a tool. We had one supervised consumption site in BC when we formed government in 2017, and there now are 42. Um, and I think an interesting thing to add to your very good explanation is that um, a lot of people are no longer injecting drugs, but they are smoking the drugs, you know, and these drugs are so potent. Some people are overdosing. Some people are dying from smoking the same substances. But that has meant that we've had an extra challenge that we've had to modify some of the injection facilities to be, now we call it supervised consumption because it might be inhalation or it might be uh, injection. But the ones that really um, work the best, you also mentioned about the connection to healthcare. So in Duncan on Vancouver Island, there's a place called the Couch and Wellness Center. It is a supervised consumption site. But when the person first walks in, you see like kind of a, a bunch of desks in a way, like a little small desk where you would um, um, either inject or inhale your substance. On the way in, you pass by a little tiny office that will have a nurse practitioner or a doctor in it. And so while the person's on their way by, then the doctor might say, hey, Fred, it looks like you're limping. 
um, why don't you come and let me have a look at your knee? And so the person doesn't need to make an appointment or anything. And in some cases, then that direct connection with a primary care provider that maybe they the person never had a doctor before, maybe they get their pain dealt with, which means that then they don't need to take the drugs to overcome the pain. Then this particular place, the other end, has a nurse that's doing a program with a, um, a version of a prescribed safe supply. Um, and so again, because the person has come in with their own illicit street drugs, they start to form some relationships. They think the people that are there are trusting and caring of them. And then that leads to a conversation. Maybe we can get you on a prescribed safe supply to stabilize you and then slowly off, 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 and then maybe to treatment. And then maybe you have a different life ahead. Um, you're able to keep your job. You're no longer doing crimes to feed the illegal supply. I mean, and and then I heard from one family, you know, we got our children back. We were both drug users. The state had taken away our children. Now we got our family reunited. Now we're on a good path with no substance use at all. You know, we, you know, we realize that to judge people who use drugs can often drive them further away from the healthcare system. So the people that are working on the front line are really very careful about saying, look, addiction is a healthcare problem. I'm not going to judge you for what got you here, but let's give you some options. And so when we have supervised consumption paired with healthcare and paired with treatment, it, that's the best. And that's what we're working towards. Thank you so much for your explanation. While we were researching information on this topic, we found that the public has a lot to say regarding this policy. Some of the popular opinions include that we are spending public funds for treatment for addiction rather than for assisting addicts, that they allow and encourage individuals to try drugs, and people still believe that it is a bad message for teenagers. Do you still often encounter pushback or these kinds of misconceptions about safe injection sites? Are they still common? I think we always are going to have work to do. Um, but in the example that I was describing from the one on Vancouver Island in Duncan, um, people were using drugs on the streets. There was a lot of thievery um, and uh, there was a lot of visible signs because there was nowhere for people to go who desperate people. Um, there was a lot of visible impact. Um, the uh, there was quite a pushback from the neighbors who did not want this healthcare facility to be cited. But fortunately, the health authority just said, "This is healthcare. This is not debatable. This is a healthcare service, um, and we're going to go ahead and do it." Um, and then when they uh, and and then so the neighbor said, "It's too close to the school. We don't we don't think it's a good spot." But they went ahead and opened anyway. And the students at the school came to welcome them and say. You um, are people in our neighborhood and we want you to get better. And we really, well, the, the students were more progressive. And now you go and it is a healthcare place. So there aren't people on the street outside. They go inside to use their substance. They kind of stabilize and then they move on. Now it's not perfect. We've got a lot of work to do. And still, even if a person there says, I want to go into treatment, Often there's too much of a waiting time and maybe they change their mind by the time they're there. So we are really working hard so that we can, we have more and more treatment available and, and also recognizing that sometimes there's gaps in between treatment. People go to detox, they're ready, they're waiting for treatment, but then they change their mind and then later have to go through detox again. Like there's lots of stories of people cycling through, but we're trying to build a system where they have options, um, where they're supported. 
And uh, we're spending much more on treatment than we are on supervised consumption or our prescribed safe supply. But that's the majority of our budget. So sometimes people say, you're not doing anything on treatment. And I think really it's when I announce new addiction treatment beds, everybody says, hooray. And so the newspaper don't really cover it. They don't tell the stories because there's no kind of conflict. Um, I think it's more the things about, you know, the visible signs of substance use and um, some of the controversy that gets in the media more. And I think that then changes people's perception about where our government priorities are. We are trying both Premier Horgan and now Premier David Eby, we're really trying a balanced approach so that we have all along the continuum of care, we've got good options for people and treatment's a really important part of that. So with every issue, it really is tough to clear all of the misconception, What we but we appreciate the effort of the ministry regarding this. And media attention has often put the academic impacts of the pandemic on the youth at the foreground, while pushing the mental impacts in the background. Now, could you briefly describe some of the trends and challenges that you are seeing around, like, youth mental health in this province? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's been so much pressure, you know, and I know the pressure's there already. Um, And then you add on isolation of COVID-19 pandemic, some really serious uh, climate emergencies, you know, floods or fires. Um, for especially for Indigenous people, the um, confirmation of um, unmarked graves at former residential schools and the reopening of old wounds that that causes. Um, I've heard from a lot of young people and a lot of families about increased anxiety and things about masking and germs. And, you know, this is so much. Um, And I think also at the same time, I think everybody's done a better job about encouraging people to come to talk about mental health challenges. Would you agree like it seems to be just much more of a conversation. When I was in high school, we just didn't talk about it. It just wasn't a thing. Um, you know, someone might come to school with a broken leg or something and you talk about that, but it just wouldn't be about anxiety or depression. So I think there's a really, it's a credit to the movement and credit to young people that there's more capacity to talk about it. But that also then means the responsibility of government is that there are youth oriented services designed for them. So I would love to give a plug for the Foundry and Foundry app. Um, There are, I think, 13 Foundry Youth Centers open already, and we're going to open another 10 more. But for people that don't have a Foundry Youth Center in their community, check out the Foundry app. You can make appointments for, um, for group mental health counseling. You can get advice with your specific problem. And it's very quick. It's not like you sign up for a counseling appointment six months from now. It's like, I'm anxious about this right now. I'm really stressed out about an exam or about the loss of of a grandparent or whatever. And you just get help with what you're grappling with on that day. And then you come back for more when you have the next hurdle, you know, but there's also within Foundry, there's access to um, addiction treatment advice, uh, to mental health counseling, to reproductive care, to primary health care. So really trying for people age uh, 12 to 26, really trying to build together um, a place that's designed for and by youth. And that's something that our government is funding. And it kind of has that intersection of mental health, substance use, um, lots of forms of care. Certainly, it has been a difficult time over these past few years. But is there anything in particular that you see that lifts your spirits when it comes to mental health and addictions? And to end this podcast on a lighter and positive note, Is there something that you want to share with our young audience? 
You know, I, I tell you one, uh, one inspiring story is uh, visiting an addiction treatment center uh, near Abbotsford. It's called Pierdenville, and it's for women. They have built into the addiction treatment center a childcare, and it's been running for 25 years. And what I heard from the um, from the childcare workers was that often women who, well, anybody, I guess, but this is especially for women and the impact on families. If they're deep in their addiction, they often have not been looking after their children. Maybe it's another family member that does. Um, and now that they are there in treatment, they're able to get the counseling and they're, they're not in active addiction. They get taught right there about how to look after their kids and it's the simplest thing of like how to get them dressed for bed at night and they the all the um women there getting addiction counseling they will be um in classes and counseling during the day but then at lunch they have to go and get the kid and bring them to the childcare for lunch and learn just how to have a structure a regular day the kid can't be awake at 11 o'clock at night you have to bath and put on the jammies and bring for story time at the um, childcare at, you know, 7.30 at night. And then you put the kid to bed early, you know, and this is what grownups do. And I just think this is something that is both repairing the women's lives and then rebuilding their families too and giving those those kids a chance for a better start. And I say one more inspiring thing. I was not doing anything like you are when I was your age. Seriously. And there's so many young women that are working in representation. They're thinking of elected office. They're involved in election campaigns. They're looking at how we can get more gender diversity in the power positions in the world, you know. And so I just know you're so far ahead of me and my government caucus here for the NDP and the legislature. It's majority women. That's never happened before in the country's history. Um, and I just think it's going to be even more so by the time those of you who are already leading in your communities, um, it just gives me a lot of hope for the world. Uh, you're on the right track. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Once again, thank you so much, Minister Sheila Malcolmson, for joining us in this highly relevant discussion. We hope that our youth audience gained a deeper understanding and enjoyed this episode as much as we did. As always, thanks for listening to Voices Podcast. You can find us on Spotify or Apple Podcast. This is all for today. Stay tuned for our next episode.